So um, this week, through just a helping hand, Megan was uh, drawn in by some people she has contact with to help her family. Uh, I think there was an email went around the church email group asking prayer and um, piggybacking on, on Megan. I was just I was able to meet the family, Elspeth and I met them, and. Um, I don't know all the th- reasons how they've ended up, but certainly they've had a lot of sort of not very helpful private landlords and they've ended up in a pickle and for the last six months they've been living rough in effect, in effect living on different people's floors and uh, one night even sleeping in their car and yet even the next day they got their boys to school. You know, they, They're just basically good people who've fallen on hard times and we need to remember that because sometimes we can think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of the media will make us think that people who are homeless or whatever, they're feckless and whatever. And we all make bad choices, but some of us pay a much bigger price for our bad, bad choices than others. And some of us get away scot-free with our bad choices, actually, or we think we do. And, um, and it was such a blessing that we were able to bless this family. They were so grateful uh, through Megan's good offices and through the resources raised through Just a Helping Hand. Uh, we were able to give them a little bit of respite and help, and um, but their needs are still there, right? They still have a, a great challenge, and they've gone on to sleeping on someone else's floor at this time. But we, together, as if you've been involved with Just a Helping Hand, we've helped give them six days of accommodation, okay? And I think that was a good thing to do. But, you know, God has not been unjust to that family, but people have been. And a lot of people blame God for what people are responsible for, actually. Now, Christianity asserts that God is not unjust. He is just. He is merciful. He is not unjust. But in his great mercy, through what Christ did, God our Father has acted to secure our blessing, which we were thinking about last week, and we, particularly with the, the thought of God's blessing for the nations and how God wants the nations to be glad and is sending us to the nations. But I want to move today to the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's one of the letters that we have in the Bible. And um, to talk about this place of being in this place of God's blessing, which is often called rest. Now, I've got to dash over here. I might get feedback. To show you something, ask you whether you know what it is, and this is where I've got to put the hand mic down because I need two hands. Sorry about that. Do you know what this is? Hammock. That's right. Would you like to get in it? No, because this hammock, my daughter Katie and I made this hammock, and it was made for. See? It wasn't made for this actual teddy, actually. Katie, it was made for Katie's teddy, and Katie has her teddy, but this was a teddy I found in the house. Uh, you know, you always need a teddy, don't you? And, uh, so th- this, this is teddy resting, right? And God wants us to enter his rest. So um, the most important question uh, I would say to you is to ask ourselves is this, am I living in God's favor under his blessing? That is the most important question any human being can ask. Am I living under God's favor and God's blessing? And to be, um, if we can answer yes to that question, then all other questions are secondary, actually. All other concerns are secondary. If you can be assured, yes, I am under God's favor and blessing, you, uh, all other questions are secondary. So how do we live in that blessing or rest? So uh, let's read from Hebrews 6 and verse 10 to 20. 
So, Colin, the slides will come up. It'll be on the screen or you can look in your Bible. I'm reading from the New International Version if you are uh, wondering. God is not unjust, he says. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And then he's going to refer back to an Old Testament character called Abraham. It's very important in the Bible. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, God swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, may be greatly encouraged. Say that phrase with me, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain in heaven where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And you might be saying, way weird. Listen, we won't get to that bit, but the rest of the letter picks that up. So, the life of blessing, I want to say to you, first of all, does not rule out work. You might think, oh, to be blessed means I don't have to go to work. Right? That's what you might conclude. And yet you notice it starts here. It says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and your love. The love you have shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. So, yeah, we can just show verse 10. It continues. It's the next slide, Colin. So, uh, God our Father wants to bring justice in the earth. He wants to do good to people, to spread his blessing wider. And it's his plan to use his followers to do this. And he loves us when his blessed people work blessings for others. When we help this family, when we teach people to cook, as we were hearing about from Helen last week. Right In this world, we live with the heart of a king and the hands of a servant. With the heart of a king and the hands of a servant. And we really can do good. We really do bring healing. When we pray for people on healing of the streets, even if they don't actually get healed, and sometimes people have a measure of healing, they feel loved by people being willing to be out there on the street. And we, we, we announce salvation. We display faith, hope, and love, and righteousness, peace, and joy. And we can actually be a help. That's what this, this verse says. It says, God won't forget the, the work and the love you've shown as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We really are, we really can be a help. And God loves that. He really loves that. The Bible's vision of human beings is not that we're powerless victims, but that in God we're powerful to bring change, to actually be a help. We, can, we have real agency, we have real responsibility to do good or to do evil. And that's why the world gets in a mess, because unfortunately so many times we choose to do evil. Now, I want to ask you therefore, are you in God's secret service? 
Are you in God's secret service? Because there is, there's value actually to secret service because it says here, he will not forget your work and the love you have shown. He will not forget and he knows everything we do even in secret. You know, he knows when you put the milk back in the fridge that your spouse left out and you didn't go and point it out. That's the hard bit. Uh, that's the bit I fail. I put it back in the fridge and I say, you left the milk out. Right? But to put it back in the fridge and not announce it, that's being in God's secret service. Right? To pick up that bit of litter in the street when nobody's around. To pray with one of our church members, Megan Wilcox, out, out on a ministry trip in Japan. To pray for Megan. Nobody else may know you've prayed, but God does. You can be in God's secret service. He sees it when we give eye contact to the man at the supermarket checkout. Nobody else may know that. Nobody who's evaluating you or crediting you. But God, he knows that. You can be in God's secret service. But it doesn't have to be secret because Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they would glorify your God and Father. And so it's good for us to do things like food bank publicly or to go out with healing on the streets. These things are public goods. To visit people in prison, to clothe the naked, to care for the sick. God our Father notices these things. Now you see many people think that the Heavenly Father only notices faults. That's what many people think about God. They think, oh God, he's just looking out for me to make a mistake. He's just looking for a reason to kick me. Sadly, that's what many people think. But this verse tells us not that. It tells, doesn't say that. It says, he'll not forget your work and the love you have shown. Friends, I want you to know, every act of secret service or public service, it will not be forgotten. Right? Our God notices these things. They're noticed and logged. When we joyfully give our affection, our time, our talents, our resources for the blessing of others, it attracts God's attention. And it draws his presence. And we want his presence. We are wanting to connect heaven and earth. We're wanting to be the people, the, the bridge that's bringing heaven's resources to earth's needs. And this is what we're part of. So please notice then the kinds of works that he doesn't forget. It's not just work. It's work that includes the love you have shown him. Right? It's work that flows from love for Christ. Because we can do work for many different motives, but this is the best of motives. So, um, and, and scripture makes it very clear, when we do good works without love, it's, a, it's just a terrible noise. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. Sometimes in films, a, a, you get a, a piano dropped down the stairs. Do you know that kind of, you ever seen a film where that happens? It's a sort of, it happens I'm sure in many films, because it's such a great noise to happen, isn't it? The terrible discordant din as the piano crashes down the stairs. Well, that's what it's, it's like a, an orchestra that haven't tuned up and they're out of time. It's, if there's no love, then the work doesn't sort of sit well. It doesn't feel right. So, being blessed doesn't mean there isn't work. It's because we're blessed that we do work. And we're blessing to others. Um, and then the place of blessing is a place I want to say next from verse 11 and 12. If you can go to the next slide, Colin. Um, it's a place of, of receiving. Yes, of giving, as we've already said, but also of receiving so that we can give. So the, the writer here says positively in verse 11, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit 
what has been promised. There's a sort of parallel to these two verses. What, what, what we want each of you, we do not want each of you. And then an outcome that arises from this. Now this word for lazy here, it's not the normal word for lazy I've read. The normal word for lazy in the Greek New Testament is argos, actually. It means lazy. <laughs> and, um, but here was a different word which means more like slow or sluggish and by implication unreceptive. What it's meaning is that we do not want you to become unreceptive but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit, receive what has been promised. And so to walk in the life of blessing means to be receptive. It's receptive people, it says, will see what you hope for being realized and will inherit and receive what's been promised. And so this is the life of faith. To walk in under the blessing of God is the life of faith. Now, let's not misunderstand here. This doesn't mean that everything in your life turns out immediately as you would wish. In fact, later on in the letter it says you might even die waiting. You might even die waiting. Now, it was very happy that for Felix, there was a ticket for him to fly to that event. That was God's blessing. But there can be much bigger things that we carry as a hope, some of which we may not see fulfilled even by the time we die. We're told Abraham didn't. There was something he was still looking for and hoping for in the promise of God that he didn't see and he died. And... You know, we heard a story from um, Matt about the birth of your third child, Piper, who's just over there. Um, but Abraham was also promised a child. He had to wait. He, that his child wasn't born till he was 100 years old. So you, sometimes you have to wait a long time. Do you understand? So we're realistic about these things. Um, but there's an important diligence and there's an emphasis here, even here in this passage because it says we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end. You can see that sense. There's an awareness that actually holding on, receiving a promise is not something that just, you know, just happens. Oh, I've now got myself into a receptive pose so the air ticket will arrive. The baby will, the conception will happen. No, not necessarily. Sometimes there is waiting and there's a danger then that we become lazy, we become unreceptive because of the delay rather than imitating those who through faith and patience receive what is promised. So last week, Helen, you were telling us about the ministry called Eat Well, Spend Less, a, a cooking ministry to help teach people to cook, something which you said you'd carried in your heart for many years, um, but eventually it came to fruition after many years. So it was a hope that you'd nursed and you'd held on to, but you'd waited patiently, not that you'd been inactive, you were busy serving God in many ways, and then this door opened up, and something that you'd carried was able to be brought to fruition. This is the life that we bring, and the life that brings blessing to the world. We live in a world of people very sad, so much suicide, so much unhappiness and misery, and we're to be people of faith, hope, and love. Both All those words get mentioned in this passage, actually. People of faith, hope, and love, standing as beacons in our world. Joyce Mayer says that patience is not the ability to wait, it's the ability to keep a good attitude while we wait. Right? And patience is mentioned here twice in both verse 12 and then again in verse 15. Well, 
to be patient, to have a good attitude while we wait. That is to stay in a receptive place rather than to become unreceptive. Leaders are people who learn to navigate disappointment without downsizing their hopes because disappointment can spoil us. It can make us unreceptive. Uh, Earlier this year in February, I went to California with my wife to visit our daughter who was doing a course the first year of a course called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry in a church in California called Bethel Church. Some of you might have heard of it. I was able to get to a few sessions of the the school and um, one of the guys who leads the training school called Dan Farrelly, he was speaking. And in the course of his talk, which was a great talk, but one of the things I really pricked my ears up for He said he'd asked the lead pastor of the church, a guy called Bill Johnson, who, um, again, some of you may have heard of, it doesn't matter if you haven't, but he'd asked Bill, what is the main outcome you want for the 1,300 students on year one of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry? And he said that Bill Johnson replied immediately that they leave here knowing how to deal with disappointment. That was his main thing. That he, and immediately that he said that was his immediate reply. And uh, I just landed on my heart and I thought, you know, that is such an important thing because dealing with disappointment is utterly, utterly important for people who are, promise, who are heirs of promises. If we are heirs of promises, then we need to know how to deal with disappointment. Because this place of blessing is a place of faith in God's promises as it makes clear in verse 12 we do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised and as so often as we've mentioned in the reading when we talk about faith we go back to Abraham because he's the father of all those who have faith and so we read about this that when God verse 13 the next slide Please, Colin, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one great of him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I'll surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, I don't know um, about you, but you might be thinking, oh, well, this is all irrelevant to me. It's about Abraham and a promise he had. But if in a moment we'll read a little bit later in the passage, and it actually says that we are the, that all those who have faith in Christ are heirs of this promise. So we are the heirs of this promise. Now, I don't know whether any of you ever caught those TV shows, kind of air hunters, that kind of thing. Because, you know, when people die, their will has to be lodged at the, is it the probate registry or something up in London, Chancery Lane or something like that. And they become public record. And if they couldn't find any heirs, that, that money just sits there and eventually the government gets it. All right? But there's a period of time in which um, people make a business of this. They, they can go and find the wills where nobody was found to inherit the, the money that was left. And they go hunting for the heirs by trying, chasing the family tree back and trying to find distant relatives. And I guess, I guess it's all very exciting on the TV, which I bet it's pretty boring, actually. And they, they try and make everything on TV really exciting, don't they? they you know, that, that show, Kevin MacLeod, what's that show called? Grand Designs. I quite enjoy Grand Designs, but there's so much hazard. It's like, oh, will this happen? There's so much peril they try and introduce. I think it's not that perilous. They're just building a house. You know. 
It's too, it's too nerve-wracking. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's a, an aside. But in, in those shows, the, 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 you know, something would... And I don't know if, if you ever watch them, maybe you just have a... I don't think it's a very helpful thought, but you might think, oh, I wonder, it'd be great if someone knocked on my door and told me that some fourth cousin four times removed had died and I was the closest relative and I was going to inherit, you know, £84,000 or something. And it's just a kind of wishful thought. It's not really not worth indulging such thoughts because wishing doesn't get you anywhere. Faith in God's promises is what gets you something. And... Um, so, uh, um, but in a sense, we are air hunters, uh, and we, we have the scripture which tells us what promises we can inherit, and so we are people who read this book so that we can inherit these wonderful promises. And I don't know about you, but when I read verse 14 here, and it says that God swore by himself, I, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. I think, well, that's not swearing by yourself. Um, so I went back to look at Genesis 22:17, where the quote's from, and we have a slide of verses 15 to 18 of Genesis 22. So you can get the whole passage. So um, the story is here. This is where God has said to Abraham, who's, who's had, he had this promised son aged uh, when he was 100, and he's probably now about 115. The boy is a teenager probably. And God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac, to kill him on an altar, right? And, um, and of course, once Abraham gets to the altar, God says, no, don't, don't actually stab him. There's a ram over there. Sacrifice the ram instead. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself. Here's that statement, right? I swear by myself. This is what the letter to the Hebrews is referring to. I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So it starts with this thing, I swear by myself, which is made much of in this section of Hebrews. Right? If we go to verse 16, the next section, people swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Now you might say, oh, this sounds very old-fashioned, but I remember as a kid often saying, cross my heart and hope to die. Do you, ever, do you remember doing that? So you, 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 you were probably in the habit of lying quite commonly as a child, but every now and then you really wanted your friend to know or your parents to know you were telling God's honest truth. And so you'd say, cross my heart and hope to die. You were, you were swearing on yourself. You were swearing, you know, let my, if I'm telling a lie, then I should die, sort of thing is what you're saying. You're kind of bringing almost like a curse on yourself if you were lying. And this is what oath-taking is like. And still today in a court of law, people are, um, invited to make an oath, aren't they, of some kind usually. Now, of course, people can still lie even when they've taken an oath. But God has no reason to lie, does he? He's not scared of anybody. There's nobody, who's gonna, there's nobody bigger than God who's going to come and, with a stick, right? So he has absolutely no reason to lie. And so the scripture actually says that God will not lie, that he cannot lie. He only tells the truth. And so something really big is, is made about this um, as we read on here. Um, because we read in verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, 
this is really amazing, don't you think? Why God doesn't need to do this, but God has chosen to make something very clear to us. So listen up, friends. Whoever you are, listen up, because God wants you to be very, very clear about something here. Right? To, because everyone who has, who has faith in Christ is an heir of what was promised to Abraham. We are heirs of that promise. He confirmed it, right? God confirmed it because he wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Right? It would have been enough for him just to say it because God never tells a lie. So if he says, I will bless you, then that's enough. But he says, I swear that I will bless you. So he doubles up on it. Because he wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. Because God's not going to change his mind about wanting to bring blessing. It's not that God has been desiring blessing for a period and then he's going to change his mind and become angry and want to do us down. He is not going to change his mind about this. So why does God the Father, why did God the Father want to make this so clear to us? Well, it says, but God did this so that, verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Strengthened, encouraged. Now, I bring this to you, it's, it's very technical, it's very legal language that's used here about oaths and all the rest. So they can find you know, papyri and stuff, ancient documents that use the sort of language in this passage. But the Holy Spirit inspired the letter to be written and friends, I want you to ground your faith on such important things because God wants you to be encouraged. He wants you personally to know that this is the unchanging nature of his purpose and to be very clear about it for yourself that these promises, you are an heir of these promises so that we would be greatly encouraged because the person who has the most hope has the most influence and God needs people of hope in this world. He is a God of hope and he wants us to be beacons of hope and faith and love. So how do we enter and remain in this place of God's favour and blessing? If we uh, go jump a slide to the uh, Isaiah 30 uh, text here. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says. This is a section from the prophet Isaiah. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness, quietness and trust is your strength. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust. Trust is another word. A word like faith is your strength. Repentance and faith are always the important things. And today... You have an important place and a responsibility to renew faith, to renew repentance, so that you will walk uh, and, and be, uh, and, or maybe to have it strengthened and encouraged so you stay waiting patiently, diligently, holding fast to the promise of God. And so um, faith is not an alliance with God, it's reliance upon God. And his blessing's not earned by being good. That would make it wages. The Bible says it's not wages, it's a gift. Therefore, it is not earned. And we receive it as something undeserved. In fact, something we shouldn't, we should be denied because we don't deserve it. But by faith, we lean on God's kindness and mercy and we receive his blessing and we believe for his promise. And I want to invite you every day, if you don't every day get to the place where you know, yes, I am an heir of this promise. And whatever happens today, I am in the good of this and I'm believing God 
that in my life, through me, I will be a blessing to others. It releases us. I want you to receive this. You, it's simple words. It's not difficult to understand. But tr- you can make a transaction with God today if you've drifted out of that faith and become in a place of negativity uh, or whatever. And then in repentance, as we read from Genesis, sorry, from Isaiah 30, in repentance and rest. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a choice to think and speak differently. You know, apart from what God did in Jesus on the cross, every, God works by speaking. Do you know that? He, he, when he says something, it, it literally creates what he speaks. Those who speak God's word shape God's world. And so we need to govern our tongues. We change our thinking, changes our speech, and that's a really positive thing. So, you know, um, to complain and be negative, complaining is not, not the sort of language should be on royal lips. We should be professing faith in Christ. And uh, to complain or be negative is actually soaring off the branch you're sitting on, which is the promise of God. So let's not do that. It's like growing nettles in your own house. You'll get stung. So, you know, just thinking again about revive here. You know, God has provided it. And, um, and it, it's taking time bringing everything together. But so many things have come together. But, you know, when God was making the creation in the Genesis 1 over six days, each, after each day he said it's very good. You know, it's good. And so we can enjoy the journey and I think that's really helpful. Some churches, when they get a building, we've owned this place now for, what, three and a half years. Some churches spend 10 or 15 years paying off a big mortgage. And maybe three times a year they have a big offering. And in that sort of scenario, you can get a bit fed up with all those offerings. Do you, do you understand? And you have to be rise up and not get complaining about it because that's how God arranged it. Well, here, God arranged us to get all of this for, with two offerings as we went, and that was it. But the longer process is, is finding, is filling the space with activity. Maybe we'll spend 10 years doing that. Hey, that's okay. Right? It's okay. Because actually, it, the outcome is great. It's great to receive the promise, but you know, sometimes you die without receiving the promise. But the important thing is that we're holding on to God. You know, when you have young children, they start to ask you on a journey, are we nearly there yet? But we need to enjoy the journey, not just be asking, are we nearly there yet? All the time. Put out, let's put our hope in God. We keep seeing signs of God's favour. The way Suzanne Strong from the council championed us recently was, was just wonderful with respect to the business rates. And all kinds of things happen. Good things are happening. Celebrate the good things. And uh, let's not let disappointment capture us. I find this really helpful for my mental health, actually, because I find if I, beating myself up about outcomes, I get into more, more and more difficulty of sleeping well and eczema and goodness knows what else. Yeah, it's, it's not helpful to us. The, the, the doctrine, the teaching of God's promise, of living on the promise of God, is a, very, is a restful place. It's, it's a place where we're in the hammock. Of, of what God has promised, of his action, of what he's doing. And yes, we also work because we want to be a blessing. He's called us to bring his justice in the earth. We do work. But what he's looking for is our faith, our trust in him. And it's all in God's hands. So we're all in the same boat where we're encouraging one another. I wonder what Father will do next. 
what he will open up next, who he'll bring along, what's, what will happen. And that's really great. So where is this faith grounded as we finish? Well, go back to Genesis 22. If we could put that slide up again. I don't know whether it's the last one. I might have repeated it, Colin. The angel of the Lord. Here, we have this phrase, um, because you have not, verse 16, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. When I told you that story, you're probably thinking, what, God told someone to kill their only son? That sounds dreadful. I knew the Bible was a bad book. I want you to know that actually that isn't really the lesson of this story, right? And sometimes Christians, they kind of wonder, could God ask me to kill my child? No, God will never do that, right? He won't do that. I can guarantee you that. That's not God's way. And you said, well, he did it for Abraham. Yes, but actually that had nothing to do. And you know, God didn't let him kill Abraham. Abraham was not allowed to kill Isaac. And even when Abraham went up the mountain with Isaac, he told the servants, you stay here. We're going up to worship and then we will come back. He, he had faith that, because he knew Isaac was the child of promise. Right? That the point is, the story is a real story. It really happened, I believe. But the story is pointing us to God the Father and God the Son. Because this phrase, your son, your only son, it doesn't really apply to Abraham. He already had Ishmael. He had another son. Now, of course, Isaac was particularly the child of promise, so you could make a point there. But this is actually, you, know, you don't need to get into an ethical dilemma about it. This was putting a marker down. It was making an event in human history that in the future people would look back to and say, ah, this is how much God the Father loves us. Because God the Father did not withhold his son, his only son, but he gave him up for us all. And there's nobody bigger who could say, oh God, it's all right, you don't have to do it. There's a lamb over there instead or a ram. No, God the Father really gave up his son and Christ really went to the cross and he was actually killed so that we could enjoy this blessing. On that ground, we enjoy this blessing and offer it to others.